Samek. A thorn to grab, hate, protect. I hate double-minded men, but I love your law. You are my refuge and shield. I have put my hope in your word. Away from me, you evildoers, that I may keep my, the commands of my God. Sustain me according to your promise, and I will live. Do not let my hopes be dashed. Uphold me, and I will be delivered. I will always have regard for your decrees. <laughs> Reject all who stray from your decrees, for their de deceitfulness is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your statutes. Flesh trembles in fear of you. I stand in awe of your laws. That's tough. All right. All right. What do we have here? We got uh, uh, some prayer requests. We got, uh, obviously, the people that we pray for every week that are on our list of family and friends that don't know Jesus. We got them. And then we have uh, several prayer requests. Bob is looking for a good church in zip 21044. That's around Columbia, outside of Baltimore. So if anybody's listening and they know of a good church to attend around Columbia, outside of Baltimore, let me know. And I'll ask that again on Sunday, I hope. I think I wrote that down. And uh, Irene is having a biopsy. I think she had it yesterday or today for some spots after a mammogram. And her birthday is Friday. So Irene, we wish you a happy birthday. And we do pray that uh, uh, your biopsy will be negative, but please send me an email and let me know. And Stan is asking for prayer for his household for protection and blessings. He's had a couple things come up. Nina is in the hospital with pneumonia. Becky has a swollen lymph gland and they've just diagnosed it as bronchitis. Lisa's brother, David, had surgery for cancer and he almost didn't make it and that's shaken the whole family. Um, her, her sister, her nephew, Tyler, they all uh, need prayer. So those are some of the prayer requests that came in just in the past day or so. And uh, before we get started, I, I don't want to forget this, and I might. So we got a few people here. If more people come in, I've got a whole box full of bananas back there. And I hope that there are no bananas left when we leave. So please, if you take them home, cook them, make banana bread, eat them, whatever. I. I I have a whole box full of bananas and they need to go. They're all perfectly good, nothing wrong with them, but um, there you go with that. So please take bananas um, and we'll have a prayer and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the chance to uh, pray for these people that are hurting or that are having difficulties in their family or their lives and that uh, we would pray that you would be with them and uh, let yourself be known to them in a way that uh, will give them comfort in the times that they're facing. And Lord, we certainly also pray for um, Elise comes to mind. She's got a baby on the way, and so we'll add her into our prayers. And um, we pray for this class. We pray that it will be properly conducted and that uh, your word will be exalted and not mishandled. If something is said that is incorrect, I would pray that uh, that would be brought up to the attention of those who listen and uh, that they wouldn't be... Uh, led astray by anything that's said here, but rather that they would learn and be edified. And Lord, we certainly thank you for the chance to do this. We love you, we praise you, and we exalt you, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. By 14. You what? 14? Oh yeah, today, just so you all know, um, I always know what how many years it's been because it happened the same year that uh, my grandpa moved to Sarasota was 1948, and today is May 14th, 1948, which is the day that uh, Ben Gurion switched on a microphone and said the state of Israel is 
reestablished. Imagine that. Imagine that. I was just, uh, somebody sent me uh, something yesterday, and I sent him a commentary back from Mark Twain, from his book, Innocence Abroad. And I don't have the quote with me right here, right now, but um, I may. Hang on. Let me check one second. I, if I have it here, I will read it to you, and I think you'll find that rather wonderful to hear. Um, let me check. I've got to go to emails, and then I've got to go to trash, because that's where those kind of things go. <laughs> and then um, let's see here. Trash, and then we're going to look up really quickly. Um, ah, there it is. Okay, so I hope my attachment will open, and if it does, okay, here we go. This is um, May 14, 1948, was the reestablishment of Israel. Okay, now, various people at various times, uh, the reason why I sent him a reply was because he does a prophecy update commentary on uh, email, okay? And he sent one out on the book of Amos, and the very ending of the book of Amos ends in Amos 9.15, where it says that, I will plant my people Israel back in their land, and they will never be uprooted again. And I've told people that if you, if you see Israel kicked out of the land of Israel, you might as well take your Bible and chuck it. It will never happen. The Lord has spoken. He has declared his word. They are in the land, and they will not be uprooted again. And I gave him a couple commentaries. One was by John Gill from, uh, he was um, 1697 to 1771. He said that this is going to happen. These people are going to be God's people again, bucking against all of the replacement theology for the past 2,000 years. And the second one was from Adam Clark, and he lived from 1760 to 1832. And um, I'll, I'll just read a part of his commentary because it's short. I conclude, as the word of God cannot fail, now this is somebody long before Israel was reestablished, as the word of God cannot fail, he says, I conclude, and this has not yet been fulfilled, it therefore follows that it will and must be fulfilled to the fullness of its spirit and intention. And this is established by the conclusion, saith the Lord thy God. He is Jehovah and cannot fail. He is thy God and he will do it. He can do it because he is Jehovah and he will do it because he is thy God. Amen. Thus ends Adam Clark's commentary on the book of Amos. And imagine that somebody would dare to say that when there's a couple Jews here, there's a couple Jews there spread around the world and the land was completely waste. Nobody would have ever thought of it. Okay, and to prove what it was like, Mark Twain said in 1869, he traveled all through the area of the Bible, Paul's travels, and he went down and got up to the north of Israel, started at Dan, and went all the way down through the land, and he numbered the people in every place he went to. There's this many Arabs, there's this many Bedouins, there's this many Jews, there's this many of this and that and one thing, and everything was... But here is his final conclusion about the land of Israel. 1869, Palestine is desolate and unlovely. And why should it be otherwise? Can the curse of the deity beautify a land? Palestine is no more of this workday world. It is sacred to poetry and tradition. It is dreamland. In other words, it doesn't exist. What the Bible once proclaimed was this land does not exist. And that was just a very short time, what, 80 years before the establishment of Israel. Nobody would have thought the miracle that we have seen in the world today. Nobody would have looked and said, this land will be productive, except a group of Jews that started to buy that land at exorbitant prices from the Turkish Ottoman Empire, 
They bought the land, they went in there, and they gave up their lives with dysentery and typhoid to reestablish the land. You can go to the area of the Galilee, which was a complete swamp, and you can see the eucalyptus trees that are now giant. They're absolutely giant that they planted there. Why would they plant eucalyptus trees? To suck up the water, because they're from Australia, and they're water-sucking plants. And we have them, that's what they did with the Everglades here. So if you go down the Everglades, you see these eucalyptus everywhere. We call them punk trees, because they're like, they come apart like punk, okay? Anyway, they, uh, uh, or paper trees, we'll also call them. But um, uh, they, they're giant there, and they've left some of them there as a reminder that these people went in there and they did this. They drained the swamps, and we can do a study on it again. I've done it in a couple Bible studies, so there's no point in doing it right now. But how did God do this? He got the Jew out of the land, and how did he do it? I'll give you just a real quick uh, uh, discourse on it, just very quick, is that um, we, let me go up to the board, and this will help you get a picture of it. We don't want to spend too much time on this, but here is the area of Egypt, right? This is the area of Egypt, and then this is Israel over here, right? Okay, this is the Nile River, right? It goes through Egypt, and it starts breaking off into all these things, or actually it goes the other way, doesn't it? It goes big into small, okay? So what does the Egypt, the Nile River do? What is what is one of the things it's very famous for doing? Take, silt, silt, it's, yeah. All, yeah. it's all silt. And so it sends out the silt into the Mediterranean, and guess what, the water cycle goes this way in the land. So what happens when silt flows up and off to the side. What do you think happens? It plugs. That's right. All these rivers that were flowing out of the mountains are all plugged up. The Jew left the land. There's nobody there to take care of it because the Arabs sure aren't going to do it. And so the land became all marsh. All of this is marsh, all through here. Okay. And then, of course, before that happened, there was the um, dispersion of the Jews. What happened at the dispersion of the Jews? The Romans went in and they besiege the land. And when you besiege land, what do you do? Cut down, all the cut down trees to make siege works. And so there were, all the trees were cut down. All of them were just completely cut down. There's nothing in the land. It changed the water cycle of the land. It used to be that they'd get two rains every year. The Bible calls them the former and latter rains, October and uh, April time frame, right around there. Okay, and they get these rains. Well, they started to get one sparse rain every year, and that was it. The land could not sustain itself, but what did rain was now silted up so much that it couldn't get out to the sea and it all backed up and for 2,000 years this area has just become one giant marsh. What did the Jews do? They went in there and they dug all this out. They drained all of these marshes with uh, trees and with uh, getting the silt out of the uh, rivers. The rivers started to flow again. The land started to be restored. And what happens when you have 2,000 years worth of trees and decay and fertilizer? fertilizer. The best soil on the planet is there in Israel. It's called the uh, Megiddo Valley, okay? Jezreel Valley. It is, if you go there and you see them farming, it is astonishing to see how much productivity they get out of that land. And the water is there flowing through it. It's marvelous what happened. And the land was made for the Jew and the Jew was made for the land. The two, neither one of them works effectively without the other. So you've got this land that they have gone in, they've uh, uh, re-established, uh, they've got the rain cycle back in order that it should be in, okay? And because of that, the land is productive and people start moving there. And then, of course, once they've done all this work, what is the natural result of having land that is now productive? Somebody wants it. Yeah, somebody wants it. Somebody that does not deserve it 
that did not earn it, that did nothing to make it happen, suddenly says, that's ours. They stole it from us. When they've got the title deeds, we bought it at these exorbitant prices. They've got everything that they need to prove it, and yet the world refuses to acknowledge that the Jews have gone in and done this miracle, this modern miracle. Um, there's Make Go ahead. mention of the fact that uh, when you were reading Twain, he called the area Palestine. Yes, yeah, he called it Palestine, but that was a name that it was called uh, because the, the Palestinians said that has nothing to do with us, the ones that what are today Palestinians. They would not acknowledge that term. They said that is not a term that we use. They had their own term for it. I did that in a prophecy update some time ago, is that they disavowed that name until it came out that that was the name that has been called all this time, and then they said that was our land and we are the Palestinians. So it, it's a lie in both directions there, but yes, the land was called Palestine. In the book of James, I'll read you one more thing before we get done, and then after that, I mean before we get started, and then after that we will get started. But it's such a wonderful day to celebrate what the Lord has done and the promises he has kept that um, uh, one of the things that James says is in James chapter 5, it says, I'll just back up and uh, read a little bit. We'll start with verse 4. Indeed, the wages of the labor, laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived in luxury on the earth and pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. And then he kind of changes his tact and he says, Therefore, be patient, brethren until the coming of the Lord. He's talking about the coming of the Lord. He knew the Lord. The Lord ascended. He knew that he would come again. He's talking about the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth until wait, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. There is no doubt that that is a prophecy. It's a hidden prophecy that when this land for 2,000 years had no early and former or latter rains, for 2,000 years, except once in a while they'd get those sparse rains, it was not enough to sustain the land. But when the Jews went back in, they drained the swamps, they planted new trees. They have year on year the largest net gain of trees of any place on the planet. Millions and millions of trees they plant. And the Gentile people go in there and that's one of the things you get to do. We did it when we were there. Plant a tree if you want. Now, you can buy a tree and you can plant it right there and then Okay, so they've got all these trees that are being grown, and that reestablished the rain cycle. And the early and latter rains came back to Israel, and that is as sure of a sign as anything else, that when you see the former and latter rains that the farmer waits for, it's an agricultural term, which is obviously looking forward to Christ, who is the one who is the Lord of the harvest, you know that the Lord's return is near. So there you go. That's a little prophecy, 14 May of 1948. Didn't mean to uh, take so long trying to find that email, but I couldn't remember where it was or what day I'd sent it. So here we go. We're in 2 Corinthians. I got that right today. Yes. And we're going to start again with verse 9 because we did not finish it last okay. week. We'll just start again with it. I'm going to back up to 7. That's why. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Nine. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. Okay, good stuff there. All right. First couple paragraphs of this will be repeat commentary, but that's okay. Um, this verse is one which has brought 
2,000 years of comfort to those faithful Christians who are facing affliction, anguish, pain, or trial, knowing that Christ Jesus spoke to Paul and that his words are recorded for our benefit allows us to know that the Lord is speaking to each of us through his words. That's where we get our, our conversation with the Lord. We get it through the word of God. Paul has asked three times for his thorn to be taken away, but the divine answer came back with soothing words for the path which lay ahead of him. The thorn would remain, but the Lord would be there with him through it. What the words he said to me, we talked about this last week and uh, Laura had a couple good points about it. What the words he said to me mean can only be speculated on. Did the Lord audibly speak to him? Because he had audibly spoken to uh, Paul at other times as recorded in the book of Acts. Was it in a vision? Because he had visions at various times in the book of Acts. Or was no response a response in itself? Because if Paul asked something, he's the apostle of the Lord, he would hope that he'd get a response. And after asking the third time, is the dead silence the Lord said to me? You see what I'm saying? It could be any of those. In other words, did Paul deduce that this was the Lord's chosen path for him while reading scripture and contemplating the silence concerning the removal of the thorn? Any of these could be possible. Though the third option seems unlikely at first, isn't this exactly how we now receive our response? We pray for relief, we wait on an answer, and while we read Paul's words here, we realize that the affliction we are suffering is intended to be there. Maybe Paul was reading Job and he came to this conclusion. No matter how the Lord spoke to him, his answer was, my grace is sufficient for you. We have an infirmity which limits us. We think it is a hindrance to our walk with the Lord and the accomplishment of his mission that we are trying to carry out. And yet we find that the affliction is what allows us to be fruitful in his mission. We think, oh, I'm trying to serve you, Lord, and I can't because you've got me in this pickle here. Whatever it is, you know, I'm living in a land I don't want to live in, or I've got a job that I'm not happy with, or, or you know, I've got this affliction that is bothering me. It doesn't matter what the issue is that you think is limiting you, you find out that, in fact, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you, and he's got a good plan and a purpose for you right where you are at that time, okay? It's you that aren't seeing his hand in having delivered you into the place you're at, whether it's an affliction or not. Think of Johnny Erickson Tata. The Lord has used her because of her affliction and his grace has been sufficient. If you think of her, if she never dove into the water and broke her neck, she would never be known by anybody. I, I can be certain of that. She would have gotten married to somebody. She would have had a happy life, raised children, on and on, all these things that you happen to do as a person. But she probably never would have become the person that she is telling people about Jesus all around the world. Wheelchair ministries as far as Vietnam. I, you know, and I don't know Johnny Erickson Tata's doctrine. I've never read anything that she's done. I've never really listened to her speak. All I know is that she has appeared on certain things where I've seen her and just talk about her affliction. What is interesting to me is that she is a servant of the Lord and she is serving the Lord in her affliction. Okay. I, I'm not here to learn doctrine from her anyway. Okay. If I want to learn doctrine, I'm going to get it from the word and I'm going to turn on sermons from people that are trained in theology. I assume that she's not. She has a type of ministry that she does. So that's just my my thing so that you know I'm not one to follow somebody just because, you know, whatever. Um, Paul continues to cite the thought in the words, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Once again, think of Johnny Erickson Tata. She is absolutely as weak as she can be. She's a quadriplegic 
what I heard her saying was that it takes her like three hours every single day just to get ready. Her husband has to do this. It takes him three hours just to get her ready to do anything, to take her first bite of food or anything else. So she has to go through it. And she said that there are times where the bed sores are so bad that she just can't stand it because she's, you know, in this, this condition that she's in. So there you go with that. His strength is made perfect in her weakness. And he can use her in the way that she probably never would have been used before. So if you think about that, if you just think about your own situation and whatever your weakness is, he can use you despite that weakness. Moses had an affliction of speech and yet the Lord's power was made perfect through his weakness. In fact, maybe it was Moses who Paul was thinking of all along. Moses questioned the Lord's decision three times. Exodus 3.11, Exodus 4.10, and Exodus 4.13. Three times he questioned the Lord, just as Paul had done. However, he eventually yielded to the Lord's will. And so maybe he was reading Exodus that night and he says, I've asked the Lord three times and he's given me no response at all, which means that that is his response because I've just read this out of the books of Moses and this is what happened to him. I know that I am He's not the mediator of the covenant, but he is the one that is giving forth the doctrine of that covenant, just as Moses did, okay? He is the one that the Lord selected for the Gentiles to be brought into this covenant, etc. And he may have made the logical connection and said, well, that's the answer I need. The Lord has said it to me, okay? We don't know. We'll just leave it at that. Here's, here's why I, I kind of question that, is the fact that here he is writing to the Corinthians, who are saying, well, we got these other Jews that are coming down here that are so much better than you. Oh, yeah. Maybe I, so he's like, okay, let me run down my resume for a second. Right. So when you're doing that, you but he doesn't need to. I've already said that. Well, right, but he he's, al he's already done this with. He's talked to the Lord at least four or five times. Right, and so that's right. why I said that he's already done it. Right, and so right. he's got the resume. He doesn't he does. need to say that. But you don't want to. Yeah. So why would he? I don't know. I mean, he got the divine answer. What right, I'm saying right. is we don't know. Well, that's true. We, that's we have no idea. And okay. so, however he got it, I'm not here to psychoanalyze Paul, who's written this letter. All I can do is take what he said and give you options. Right. So, And the reason why is because this brings in another thing, that if the Lord actually spoke to him and said no, okay, then he now has something that you don't have. When the very fact that his affliction isn't named is there for a reason. It's because we all have afflictions and we don't know what Paul's affliction is. Right. And because we don't know what Paul's affliction is, all of a sudden. So I, I would actually go on the other side and I would say the Lord probably didn't speak to him except through his word. And that's why I brought in Moses. It's because Paul is trying his very best to not elevate himself above us in any way, shape or form. Right. And so the Lord said to me, well, people say that. I was reading the word and the Lord said to me, I bet you I get 50 emails a day on that. And I have no problem when they say I heard that from the Lord through the word. If they say, well, the Lord sat down and had coffee with me, I'm going to have a little bit of problem with that. But if they say that I was reading the word and the Lord gave me the answer I needed, hey, that's what the word is for. Right. Okay, so I don't know. I, 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 I can't debate the issue. I can only give you the options and, right, and right, get my right. commentary on it. But um, let's see here. We have, however the Lord spoke to Paul, it was evident that he finally realized that God could do great things through one with an affliction. Okay, he did it through Paul with his own poor speech. He did it through Moses with his own poor speech. He's done it through Johnny Erickson Tata, etc. And not only would great things be done but he would be the one to receive the glory. If in fact we do great things for the Lord, what happens? He doesn't get the glory, right? If you got somebody that's a great orator and never trips up on his tongue at all, and you say, oh, that guy's the best preacher in the world, and he becomes the center of focus, all right? If you have somebody that 
clings to the Word of God, trusts in the Word of God, properly teaches the Word of God, but maybe not be, may not be the best orator or something, the Lord is certainly the one that's going to be glorified through the instruction that is received, because he sure didn't get it from the guy that can't speak past his own tongue. Anyway, um, who else could use the weak, infirm, dull, poor, or shunned to do such great things? And if you look through church history, that's a great list of the weak, the infirm, dull, poor, or shunned. All of them have been used by the Lord, and they've done great things for the Lord. Um, I think I've probably brought this guy up before. Is uh, I watched a used to watch creation in the 21st century. This is years ago. Uh, he had some kind of funny doctrine and some things, but he was mostly a creationist. And he spoke about those, but he would bring guests on at times. And one of the guests that he brought on had a great story. Not only as a person of who he was but just what happened to him. And it's worth telling is that he uh, was a guy that uh, was grew up in Texas and he was drafted into World War II and he um, went to Europe, okay, to fight in the war. And when he was, I, I may get this a little bit wrong, but I think I've got almost all of it correct. That's why I'm kind of talking slowly here is to remember and not misuse the story, but uh, he was engaged to a lady and the lady um, came to New York with him, and as she went there, she went around looking for something, and she found it in a store, and she gave it to him. It was a little Bible about this big, just a little small Bible, and it was in a metal case, okay? And he still had it because it, you know, it lasts a long time. It's, anyway, so he had this little Bible, and she said, I want you to take this with you, and you know, hoping, I would suppose, that she wanted him to read it, but whatever, he kept it with him. And so anyway, he was in the thick of fighting one time, and one of his friends was told, you go up and get that uh, machine gun nest. So the guy did. He got up and he ran towards the machine gun nest, and he got plowed down immediately. And he's laying there just a few feet away from him, dying. And while he's dying, he said he was so peaceful. He said he's there reciting the 23rd Psalm. And he said, I don't know what that man has, Lord, but I want that. And if you will get me out of this, I will dedicate my life to you. And so the guy died, and then eventually he was told he had to go up and do something, and he got up and he was shot. And he was shot, boom, right, right where it was lethal. And so he uh, um, was taken into the medic place, and they pronounced him dead. And so here he is, they bagged him up, and he's in the mortuary, bagged up, and he woke up. And they said, hey, he's alive, he's moving. They unzipped him, brought him out, and he lived. And they pulled this Bible out. Now, this is the, the amazing part of the story. And he pulled it out and he showed it so that he wasn't making this up. That bullet went all the way into that Bible and it stopped pointing at the story of the widow of Nain, the son that was brought back to life. Okay, so the, the bullet right there. And he's got the pages to prove it. He just opened up and he says, here, look at this. Anyway, so. You could tell he wasn't the brightest candle in the, uh, the uh, box of candles. He was a nice guy, heart for the Lord, but he was very, you know, simple guy. He was just a, a Texas boy that grew up in Texas. And he went out and he established churches everywhere, everywhere for the Lord. He, that was his thing is he just would go out and he'd build churches and he'd get them going and then he'd move on. And here's this old man. Anyway, it was just a great story. And he used this person in his infirmity and in his weakness in order to 
demonstrate his glory. And the guy continued to give the Lord the glory through the whole talk. It was very wonderful to see. I'm not going to talk about it anymore because I'll cry, but it was a great story. Anyway, um, here we go. Um, let's see here. Where Fanny, was I? Fanny Crosby was blind. And you what? All those hymns. Fanny Crosby. Yeah, Fanny Crosby. She wrote all those hymns. and blind. That's right. She's blind as a bat. So yeah. that's, that's exactly right. Good point. Once again, the Lord used somebody that could be uh, 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 his strength would be perfected in her weakness. So good stuff there. Anyway, it should be noted that some manuscripts leave off the word my in this particular verse. If this is correct, it turns the verse into a general proposition saying strength is perfected in weakness instead of my strength is perfected in weakness. If this is the correct rendering, it might make it seem cold and impersonal, but it is not. The fact that the Lord is the one who is speaking keeps it both personal and powerful. So either way, just so you know, there's a little variation in that particular text. There's another one that I typed this morning in 1 chapter 4, I think it's verse 19. There's a, a difference in the text. And when that happens, I'll usually highlight it in my commentaries. After his realization that the thorn would stay and yet not be a hindrance to his mission, Paul says, therefore... Yes, because of these things, a good result will follow, and I will be honored to carry the thorn as a badge of surety. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities. Paul was let down through the wall of Damascus in a basket because he couldn't do it himself. He was conducted around by others as he traveled because he couldn't conduct himself. He struggled with his thorn, with pride in the Lord who had sustained him and used him in despite of it. His infirmity was the greatest point of his boasting, as he says, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The word for rest here is episkinao. This is its only use in the New Testament. It comes from two other words, epi, which is on, think of epidermis, your skin, and skenao, which is anybody? No, skenao. Oh. Skine, the word skine, okay, it's a tent. It means to dwell in, okay? I thought maybe you'd remember that from the, uh, the uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, tabernacle sermons, but skinao, um, it means to dwell in a tent. Thus it means to arise a tent over, to dwell or spread a tabernacle over. The word skinao is the same word used in John 1.14 when speaking of Christ come to dwell or tabernacle among us. He tented among us. Thus, he's fulfilling the Feast of Tabernacles, okay? That's a part of the uh, fulfillment. The feast, you'd have to go back and watch it itself. There are three pilgrim feasts where the people actually went down to Jerusalem, and that is actually a picture not of the Lord's work except in relation to us. The feast is in Jerusalem with these people. It's signifying our lives in Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of the feast, and we live in Christ after it. So those three pilgrim feasts are way misunderstood by most people, but there you go with that. What Paul is saying with this special word is that it is as if the power and glory of Christ himself enveloped him like a tent. It rested upon him, and the shining glory of Christ blazed upon him because of his thorn. Not despite his thorn, but because of his thorn. He therefore had every reason to boast in this. For Paul, the Lord's power and majesty were on display because of his infirmity. Again, think of Moses, Johnny Erickson Tata, or any of the vast number of people in redemptive history who shine forth more brightly because of their affliction. What a great God to use the weak and fallible 
to reveal his power and love to the world. You know, I was thinking about that guy that got shot one night when I was laying in bed, and I thought, what are the, what are the odds of somebody running, he's going at a certain speed, you know, he's, he's out there in the field, and then somebody shoots at him, and the wind is blowing in a certain direction, the bullet is flying at a certain speed, He's got this much clothing on over the Bible. He's got the Bible there. It hits the metal. It has to pierce through that. It's got to go through all these pages. It goes through. It could have gone in any direction in that Bible. And what does it do? The bullet ends, ends right on the page, the widow of nine. You think of all of the vast geometry and calculus and trigonometry that had to make that single moment in time come about. And then for it to be powerful enough to actually take the guy and put him in such a state that he is perceived as dead. Okay, all of that had to happen. We have somebody in this room right now that had the, basically the same thing. It wasn't a Bible, but he was shot exactly right here. And I, it's called a clip, I think. It might be a magazine if I got it wrong, I'm sorry. But he was shot while in Vietnam serving this nation and the bullet hit him and it knocked him back completely, wiped him out. And had that thing not hit there, then if it hit anywhere else, we would not have this person here. And he is one of the most effective missionaries that I know on the face of this planet. And so there you go with that. And think of that. Think of the, the circumstances that allows something like that to happen. Is it chance? Is it random chance? Is it what is it? You know, we can ascribe it to that with certain things, but I, I would find it very hard to do it with a guy that has a Bible that was given to him by his girlfriend on the last minute before he gets on a, a boat and he happens to carry it with it and the bullet ends in exactly the same situation that he turns out to live. It, 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 it can't be. The Lord has used that incident for his glory and then as a testament, even after the guy is dead probably by now, 20 years later, that he is the Lord and he is sovereign over all things that happen. Okay, so um, life application. Paul has given a list of a wide variety of troubles he faced, both external and internal, and yet none of them could overcome him to the point of dejection. Instead, he learned to exalt in them because they were bestowed upon him by Christ. Let us learn this lesson. Nothing is outside of the providence of God. Not even a bullet flying through the air that's going to hit a person in Vietnam or a person in World War II and yet spare their lives. Nothing is out of the providence of God. If we bear an affliction, it is because he has allowed it in our lives. Let us use that affliction then to his glory. All right? 12-11. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Okay, I read you a life application from 11 instead of 10, so I will read 10's life application when I get done. I have my thumb down here instead of up here. Okay, 1210, let me see if it is anything close to what you just said. Uh, therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Rather close there. Okay. This is the paradoxical attitude of Paul and of countless faithful believers since he penned these words. In Christ, there is a strength which transcends our weakness. When the divine word came, he realized that he had been asking for the wrong thing. Instead of take this thorn from me, he found that the words be exalted through my weakness were all that was necessary to find contentment and peace. 
So I would suggest to each person sitting here or anybody that's listening now or later that if you find yourself in a position that you are unhappy in or that if you have an affliction that is permanent or even one that's temporary but it's very debilitating, instead of saying, woe is me, and I'm, you know, I, I hope you'll take this away from me, say, Lord, if this is your will, then find a reason to use it to your glory while I go through it. That may be the better way of handling that rather than asking the Lord to take the burden from you is to say, Lord, I understand I have that and it may be that it's your purpose for me to stay in this situation. I'm not trying to say that's the case in all situations and nobody wants difficult times. Nobody wants to live in a place that's an unhappy situation or with people that you're not happy with or whatever, but maybe the Lord is using you and so you have to ask him, Lord, use me through this instead of taking me out of it maybe, all right? Because of this, therefore, Paul says, I take pleasure in my infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses. Infirmities are physical limitations in an otherwise normal state. Okay, you got an infirmity. Normal person will speak clearly. An infirm person will speak with a lisp or whatever. A uh, normal person will walk normally. An uh, infirm person will have a limp. Whatever. That's an infirmity. Okay? Reproaches are probably the insults that he bore because of his infirmities, such as the charge concerning his contemptible speech, which we saw in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 10. Okay, so that would be a reproach. That guy has a lip. He must be, you know, a, a defect or whatever. Okay, so that would be the reproach. His needs are those things which he lacked, but which were necessary to sustain him. He mentioned these in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 27. Then persecutions are surely speaking of the words hurled at him because of his faith in Christ and of any physical harm that came along with the verbal abuse, which if you read the book of Acts even one time, you'll see Paul got a lot of verbal persecutions. He got a lot of physical persecutions. He got stoned. He got whipped. He got cast into jail. He, you know, just on and on and on with the guy. And yet he just kept stepping forward one step at a time towards the goal. Okay. He detailed some of these in 2 Corinthians 11. Distresses would have been the trials he spoke of in the previous chapter, which came along with his travels. He was shipwrecked. He faced perils. He had anxiety for his beloved brethren and so on. So he's naming all these different categories of things that have happened to him, and it's setting a pattern so that you know that when they happen to you, that you too can endure through them, and you can make something good out of them, and you can bring God glory in the process of that. Okay, each of these he faced with a new sense of vitality, taking pleasure in them, as he says, for Christ's sake, when he realized that they were a part of what the Lord's plan was for him, and not merely a hindrance to it, he learned to revel in it. And the reason is explicitly given as, for when I am weak, then I am strong. He may be weak in the body, but he had a renewed strength in the spirit, which transcended anything his physical afflictions could throw at him. It was a strength which came from Christ and it was made perfect in his weakness. Okay, if you have something like that in your life that's just debilitating you, you can find strength in it, even in your weakness. I love to sleep. If I don't get sleep, then I don't function well at all. Okay, and that's one of my weaknesses. But I found that there are times where I can find strength even outside of a good night's sleep. It's not very often, but it can happen. And I know that if I ask the Lord, I know you have a purpose for this, He will fill that purpose up. There's no doubt about it. Okay, life application. If you have a limitation, 
which you feel hinders you from a ministry for the Lord, think again. The Lord is probably waiting for you to realize that it is this very limitation which he can use most effectively. That's probably what he's waiting for you to find out, okay? So I know I've got a huge problem with ugly, and he's been able to rise above that, hasn't he? So I'd love to say that. People get mad at me when I say it, but it's just in jest. I don't mean it, sir. Okay, anyway, I understand that uh, I won't say it. Go ahead, 12-11. I have made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been committed by you, for I am not in the least inferior to the super apostles even though I am nothing. Okay, it wasn't committed. He's not being committed. He's no, being I commended. commended. Yeah, that, I just had to laugh because, you know, you had me committed. It sounds yeah, like he's an insane back. asylum. Why would they commit? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I know that because this translation says the same word, commended. Otherwise, I would have just not even paid attention. But there you go. Okay. Crazy yeah. NIV. Yeah. There, you, uh, there is emphasis in Paul's words to highlight this situation. He says, I have become a fool in boasting. The emphasis is on the word I. It is an ironic statement to mean by the words of boasting which I have penned, I stand convicted as a fool. Okay? Immediately after this he says, you have compelled me. In this, the you is also emphatic. In essence, you have forced me into this position of boasting where I have become a fool. He's providing double emphasis in there so that he understands that what has happened is not something that he intended. He's not trying to brag. He's not trying to boast in any way, shape, or form. He just wants them to understand that you need to stop being deceived by these, as it says in that version, super apostles, or as it says in this particular version, um, what was it, eminent apostles, okay? Forget that. Forget these people that are show without substance. Forget people that pretend to be Bible scholars but don't know the Bible or people that, we talked about all of the different fallacies a week or two ago, you know, you got people that, genetic fallacies, and you've got um, uh, fallacies of people looking at because he has an education, or because he's extra tall, or because he has a great voice, or, I mean, there's just all kinds of fallacies that we have in our thinking, and we do it all the time, I'm not accusing anybody, I'm simply saying that this is what we as humans do, we see somebody that is very proficient at speaking about a matter, and you think he must know all about it, you know, one of the things I've been watching while Hidako cooks at night, if I finish up my work before she's done cooking, I will turn on YouTube and I'll watch a couple five to 20 minute videos, just depending on how long she's got to go. And there's a guy that does his Genesis history. Most of you have watched some of his things. I recommended it. He did a whole movie, his Genesis history, and he's done all kinds of short series, and they're very good. Every time I watch one, I think, I don't want to watch that. That sounds boring. I think, well, I'm really glad I watched that. Okay, but this guy will interview somebody about, uh, you know, archaeology, or he'll interview somebody about anthro, uh, anthropology, thank you, or he goes through all these different disciplines. A night ago he did one, the guy was talking about the stars and how that uh, provides evidence of creation, you know, uh, astronomy. And he, he goes through all these different disciplines, and every time that he is talking to somebody, he sounds like a specialist in that field. And so naturally you think, well, this guy must be a great brain. But the fact is he probably sat down with the guy before making the video. It's not just that they sat down and just started filming, okay? He probably got brushed up on what he's talking about. He probably said, I want to ask you some questions. Can you send me some intelligent questions to ask you so that we can set a baseline? See what I'm saying? Is it just because he presents himself as a smart guy? And I'm not trying to diminish him. I'm saying that this is what we would do in any discipline. 
even if a person is not a specialist, because it sounds like he's a specialist, all of a sudden we rely on everything that he says, okay? But the fact that he does these videos does not diminish that the videos are good, okay? He has done his preparation, it is well edited, it is well organized, the questions whether he did them or whether somebody else did them are always very intelligent, and you will learn wonderful things. I'm telling you that, I, you will. Uh, there was one that I, I kept putting off on, uh, it was a little too long, and so I, th I just don't want to watch that because I don't want to have Hitiko stop me in the middle of it, okay? And dinner's ready. And, but it was on um, biblical texts, manuscripts. It was marvelous. I'm so glad that I watched it because there, this guy had a wealth of information about biblical texts. That, that's all he does with his life. He learned like 15 of the Semitic languages, Syrio-Phoenician and Hebrew and uh, Arabic and e Egyptian and Ethiopian and S the Samaritan. And he learned all of these so that he can study the texts in a much more broader way. This is what he's dedicated his life to. And he had really intelligent things to say. If you want to just be blessed with more intelligence instead of junk on YouTube, watch his Genesis history and just go through these short what videos that he does. Was is Genesis history. Just type it in and it'll come up with all kinds of videos and start out with a couple five minute ones, right? What's the just first word? Genesis. Is. His is. Genesis. Not his. Is. I-S. My mom is it's deaf over question. there. So, yeah, it's a question. question. Is Genesis history. And they're very, very good. I recommend them. The guy is exceptional. He really is. Whether he's a specialist in those fields or not, he always enters into the discourse in a very good way. So I recommend them. And uh, if you get one that you think, wow, that was really cool, maybe send me an email and let me know about it. Chances are I've probably seen it, so don't send me the email. I will eventually see them all. So don't worry about it. But if you want to talk about it, then send me an email. But um, uh, I really, really enjoy this, and I know that you will too. If you want to know of the things of God from a completely biblical perspective. Completely. Everything is brought back to the Word of God. Everything. I so, thought he only did the one on the flood. No, that, no, that was just the, that the was main amazing. movie. It was. The, the flood movie, it's an hour and a half long, is amazing. Yes. Uh, but then he's done all of these YouTube videos, and they're just, they're, they're very well produced, and you will... What's his name, bro? Uh, I don't remember. You know, I, I, I'm more interested in the information than the person. And that's that was the point I was making, too, yeah. is that if you start getting into the person, then you start becoming kind of, like, misdirected. And so I'd rather just hear the information from video to video, so I'd never remembered his name. Oh, and, what? Oz Guinness. It's not Oz Guinness. No, it's definitely not Oz Guinness. Anyway, if it is, then I'm really embarrassed because... <laughs> anyway, anyway, maybe it is Oz Guinness. I don't know. He's just a very good uh, source of videos. Okay, so we got to get back into the... Uh, yes. um, where are we? We're in 11, aren't we? Okay, yes. Um, to explain the emphatic nature of his words, he says you and then I, I and then you, whatever. To explain the emphatic nature of his words, he next carefully clarifies what has transpired. He says, for I ought to have been commended by you. The fault for everything Paul penned, which highlighted his qualifications and the exceptional things he had done and encountered, lay at the feet of the Corinthians. He had come to them, led them to Christ, fellowshiped with them, and together they had a personal relationship. They knew him in an intimate way. So why had they driven him to this position where he now needed to boast? Why had they done this? They had turned from the man they knew to follow after the false apostles who only meant them harm. 
And we're going to see this once again in the book of Galatians, coming very soon now to a new book of the Bible near you. But uh, he's, the, these people have been swayed by people that had no right to sway them because they had gotten starstruck. They came in and they probably spoke Hebrew, ooh, and they probably wore their talit and they bowed in certain ways and ooh, aren't they religious? And they got swayed by these things which are showy. There's nothing wrong with having showy as long as the doctrine is proper. But you can have somebody that's very showy and have really, really bad doctrine, okay? What matters is the doctrine. What matters is the word, okay? Because of this, he reintroduces them into his thoughts with the words, for in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, or as it says there, the super-duper apostles. Here he uses the same unusual term that he used in verse 11.5. It is the extra super apostles to whom he is referring. Since calling them this, he has spent a great deal of time and ink demonstrating that he wasn't just ahead of them, but he was eminently more qualified than them. They had been in a race and Paul had finished the race before they had gotten off the starting line, okay? He was far ahead of them in all ways. And yet despite this, he finishes the thought with, though I am nothing, as Paul says. In these words, he may be speaking sarcastically, if so, it would mean something like, despite all I have done, and despite all of my qualifications, the false apostles have spoken of me as nothing at all. At the same time, they have elevated themselves to a place of importance among you. It also may be that his words are serious, which I would probably tend to. If so, then his intent is, despite all of the things that I have done, and despite all of my qualifications, I am just a man. All of the things that I have brought forth are rubbish and they are refuse. I am the bondservant of the Lord who is alone to be regarded. That's what I would favor in that, but it could be either way. Because of the possibility that either option is correct, it may be that he intended them to take it both ways. The Corinthians needed to take their eyes off the false apostles and also keep them off of Paul when they did. Instead, they were to fix their eyes, Hebrews 12 to my favorite verse of the Bible, on Jesus. That's right. Life application, as noted in a previous verse, it may be necessary to state our qualifications in order to establish a baseline of who we are in comparison to others. However, when we do this, it is important to not allow those qualifications to then elevate us to an unhealthy level in the eyes of others. After stating the qualifications to meet the intended purpose, we should remember to redirect the eyes of those we are addressing back to the one who truly deserves the attention. I was looking at a Facebook post just uh, two days ago and on uh, the atheist Pathios, um, the atheist's uh, corner in Pathios, they uh, were highlighting a pastor that used to get down on atheists and his catchphrase for them was, how's that working for you? Okay. And what happened in the past week? The pastor killed himself. Okay. And so, of course, the atheists are just all over this. Okay. What that man needed to do was to make sure that he always included the Lord in his word. I have no idea who he was. I have no idea what his doctrine was. I don't know anything about it. I did not read the article. It was depressing to me. My only thing was to comment on there. I'm surprised we don't see this more often. That was my comment because pastors, and I know this personally, go through so much stress 
I mean, so much stress. People don't show up to church and you worry about them. They don't show up for two months and you know you've offended them, okay? This goes through your mind constantly. You have to worry about somebody that emails you and they're sick and uh, or they need help or it, it goes on and on and on and on. It is a very stressful job. I don't care how they take it. It is very stressful. There's a lot involved in it. You don't just come in on Sunday morning and that's it. It starts at Monday morning at four o'clock and it ends Sunday night at six o'clock and it's 15 hour days every single day minimum. Okay. It's a lot of work. And so my thought with that was that I hope that he had during his sermons, not just said, how's that working for you for the, the uh, atheist, because he's right, but at the same time, he would tell them, keep your eyes on Jesus. Because if not, think of that congregation now. They have been starstruck with a person who has now left this world in kind of a, a shameful way, okay? If he focused on Jesus and they understood his limitations, then they can understand why he did the thing he did. If he didn't, then they cannot understand it, and that flock is going to be damaged forever, okay? The idea in our lives is to let us fix our eyes on Jesus, and that starts at the pulpit, and it goes to every single person in the congregation, and it needs to stay that way all day, every day, okay? 12-12. The things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles, were done among you with great perseverance. Okay, a little different here. The signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs, wonders, and mighty deeds. So they kind of switched it around and changed a couple words. Paul just said, in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. Following up with that, he immediately says that truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you. First, he is indicating that in contrast to the false apostles, he carried with him the signs of a true apostle. A sign, in Greek the word is semion, is something which points to something else. Anytime you see the, the word sign, especially in the Old Testament, it is normally properly translated if it is a word that indicates something that refers to something else. Okay, so when you see right at the beginning of the Bible where it says that the Lord put the sun, the moon, and the stars in the sky, and the first thing he says therefore is for signs and for seasons, okay? He says it before seasons, which we know that's what the stars are used for, and the people look up and they say, oh, okay, well, we plant tomorrow, or they look at the sun and they say, okay, well, it's time to start the harvest or whatever. We know these things, but he says first, they're for signs. A sign stands for something else. It's not something in and of itself. When the Lord said that this, meaning circumcision, will be a sign between you and me, it's not that the circumcision is the sign, but that's the way the Jews have taken that, and they say, see, look, I'm circumcised, and therefore I'm a Jew, and I'm right with God. That is not what it is in any way, shape, or form. The sign of circumcision means that it is a sign of something else leading to a relationship with God. And Moses says it in Deuteronomy. Jeremiah says it in his writings. Okay, I think it's said four times in the Old Testament. It's also said by Paul in the New Testament as well. Circumcision of the flesh is nothing if it doesn't, is not accompanied by circumcision of the heart. That's right. So Moses started that. It goes through the Old Testament and then to the New Testament. Okay, but more than that, the sign of circumcision is a sign which pictures the righteousness of Christ, okay? It is being born without sin, okay? He was the only person ever born without sin. 
remembering that Adam was not born, he was created. Okay, so Christ was born without sin, the sign is fulfilled in him. He has no human father to transmit the sin to him, okay, and because of that, the cut in the human nature is made. It is a sign standing for something else. And anytime you see something called a sign, like the Sabbath, there's a sign between you and me, okay, and the Lord explained that to them in Exodus chapter 16. Okay, then he codified it into law in Exodus 20 in the fourth commandment. Okay, but a sign stands for something else. It is not the thing in and of itself. If you say, I observe the Sabbath and therefore I'm right with God, you're an idiot. Okay, because that has nothing to do with it at all. We've got a whole world full of Jews to this day that the one thing that they do, actually the two things they do are they circumcise and they observe the Sabbath. Even if they don't believe anything about Judaism or Jesus or the Lord or Jehovah or the Ten Commandments or anything, they still observe the Sabbath. Okay, they think this is my sign and therefore I am right with God. That it has nothing to do with it. Zero. Okay, it is one of the things that they are to do, but it is not the thing that the Lord is referring to. Okay, so there you go. A sign, Greek simeon, is something which points to something else. Jesus gave signs which pointed to the truth that he is the Messiah. The apostles were granted to give signs to prove that they were, in fact, commissioned by the Lord. These are the outward witnesses of this fact. But more importantly than being just signs, they are the signs of an apostle. Being an apostle carried certain conditions. The most important one was being personally commissioned by the Lord. What is implied in the term signs of an apostle is that these signs belong to a select group of people and they are no longer given because there are no apostles today. If you're following somebody on YouTube or if you attend their church online and they say they're an apostle, you should probably find another church because an apostle of Jesus Christ means that he was sent by Jesus Christ and no person here was sent by Jesus Christ. There is a limited number of apostles which filled the apostolic ministry. Now, if somebody went to uh, uh, Kenya on behalf of the superior word, they went to the superior word Kenya and they visited them, they could say, well, I'm an apostle of the superior word. It would be kind of pointless doing that, you know, just say I'm here from the superior word and you don't need a, a title to prove that you're anything. But the use of the word apostle is way misused in our, you know, the uh, Catholic Church, the Episcopal Church, they say they have apostolic succession. They pass the apostolic succession on through the laying of hands through thousands of years. I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. Jesus assigned the apostles, they are sent ones of Christ, and once Jesus was gone, there were no more apostles with, one, with the exception of one born out of season. Who is? Paul. That's right. Paul was born out of season. Other than him, there are no more apostles, okay? So, um, uh, these are outward signs of their, uh, where was I? Is that right? Signs of apostle, most important. Oh, yeah, okay. So, therefore, the things which supposedly confirm apostleship today are false. God has validated the work of the church, and his word speaks of it. We are to have faith in his word and not in supposed eternal or externals which are falsely given by those who have no apostolic authority. I need to write something there. I left off an X in the word externals, and so it said eternals, and I need to get that corrected. In the signs that were given, Paul says that they were accomplished among you with all perseverance. There is a decisive tone in the word accomplished. These signs were fully wrought, thus attesting to the surety of the commission. 
despite all of the difficulties of the apostles which they faced, despite their privations, despite those who came against them and attacked them continuously, they still worked the signs of their apostleship, validating the words that followed. Today, those who claim to do signs don't do it under hardship. Instead, they do it, do them with a money basket being passed in front of them. They then get into a limo or a Learjet and they take off to milk another congregation full of suckers. I know that sounds very harsh, but that's the reality of it. I'm not here to mince words with people, okay? These people are not of the Lord. They're not. But the true signs of an apostle were in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. That's Paul's words. Again, the signs pointed to something else. They were validations of their commission. The wonders, or teros, were those things we might call miracles. The miracles were so obviously of heavenly origin that no man could claim that the power to accomplish them was from the apostles, but rather from the Lord. And that's one thing that the apostles never did. They never said, I have healed this person. Okay, they always said, you think this was us that did this? Rather, this was the power of the Lord Jesus. The mighty deeds, or dunamis, that word there, anybody? Dunamis sounds like? Dynamite. Dynamite, there you go. It's the root of the word dynamite. The mighty deeds, or dunamis, are those things which testified to the power of the source from which they were derived. It is a miracle, or terras, that a man is healed but the healing is also a mighty deed or dunamis because of the source of the miracle. It is the effective working of God's power through the apostle. Life application. If we have faith in Jesus to save us from our sins, then we should ask, where did I hear of Jesus in order to have faith? The answer is from the Bible. If we believe the message about Jesus, then why should we not accept the rest of the Bible, which gives us the full word of God? Now, when I say from the Bible, it may be somebody had told you about Jesus, right? But where did they get that message from? It came from the Bible. And if he heard it from a movie, that word still came from the Bible. Eventually, everything goes back to the word of God. That's where it goes to. Okay, I'm not one of these people that gets down on movies about Jesus. People say, well, you shouldn't portray Jesus in a movie. You know what most of Christian history was, as far as learning about Jesus? It was plays and dramas that people would do in cities because they couldn't read. And so what did they do? They'd have dramas about the crucifixion, and they still do some of them in Germany. They've been doing them for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. They still do these outward dramas, and it gets people to understand what Christ did, okay? It's one of the most effective ways of evangelizing people is through the eyes. If they can see the story of Christ come alive, then that will be for them salvation, for many of them, okay? I have no problem with movies about Jesus. I have no problem at all with it, plays or whatever, okay? Uh, there are other ways of evangelizing as well, but all of those ways ultimately must come back to the source, which is the Word of God. Okay, it's the only place that we have any information about Jesus except a couple of sentences. Oh, there was a guy named Jesus and blah, 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 and that's it outside of the Bible. You could not make a religion out of those. It would be like making a religion out of saying, you know, um, I met a guy when I was traveling in Missouri in 1847. His name was Tom, and he, you know, he really was an eloquent speaker. That's about all you're going to get. Okay, so there you go with that. Um, the, the word is where we get our instruction. If we don't believe that the apostles had the, the power to work miracles, then why should we believe that Jesus can save? Okay, see what I'm saying is people will diminish the miracles in the Bible.
happens all the time. People say, well, you know, I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe that these people really healed or they really did this or that. If you can't believe that these people did it under the authority and power of Jesus Christ, as is recorded in the Word of God, and the Word of God is where we get the instruction about Jesus, and why should you believe about Jesus? Okay, that's a very good point. Before I finish the life application, I will say that one of the Is Genesis histories, and it was one that I watched probably within the past two days because it's on my mind, but it's a point that I love to make with people, is the first 11 chapters of Genesis are always diminished by people that want to uh, tear apart the Bible. I believe in Jesus. I believe that David really lived. I believe that, you know, Solomon lived and there was a temple. And all. They believe all of these things. And these are believers, Christians. They go right back to Genesis 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, and 1, and they don't believe it. They don't take it at face value. Now, how can that be separated from everything that comes after that when it is written in a historical narrative form. It gives genealogies, it gives times, it gives time frames, it gives every single thing that you need to know. There's no change. As a matter of fact, it was the guy that did the, the textual stuff that I was talking about. He gave, he went through the entire Torah and he took all of the uh, occasions of a certain form of verb and he said there's absolutely no change in all of the Torah compared to the first 11 chapters of Genesis. He says, you would have to presuppose that this was not true because the Bible shows that it claims to be true. It reveals the exact same narrative form all the way through. It is true, okay? And so, having said that, people struggle with, is creation short-term or long-term? I don't care if you struggle with it or not. The fact is that the Bible gives you no other option. I've said this, and when I listened to this guy speaking, he said exactly what I've said for years. There is no other option that you can get from the biblical narrative other than a seven-day creation, it is, or six-day creation with the seventh day following it, okay, seventh day of rest. You cannot find any other option in Scripture. There is no way to do it unless you insert, you know, there's a, a, a what's that, recreation theory, an entire theory of recreation is inserted between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. I mean, literally, books have been written about it, okay? Why did they do that? It goes back to the 1800s in a Presbyterian minister who was scared at the Darwin uh, thinking that had been developing, which had actually been going before Darwin. Darwin just kind of codified it into thinking through origin of species, but this, this about the time of the Enlightenment and through there, these people are are saying, well, you know, we can we can dismiss this first 11 chapters of Genesis, okay? And so this Presbyterian minister came up with all of this information and he just made it up because he was scared of looking like a dummy around scientists. Instead of the other way around, the scientists will climb up the hill and one of these days they'll get to the peak of the hill and they'll look over and there is a theologian sitting there believing in the first 11 books of Genesis and it is validated because God is standing there with him or the Lord is standing there with him, okay? That is what's going to happen. The Bible is true in 100% of what it says. Even if it's hard for you to believe, don't disbelieve. Just simply say, I don't understand it, Lord, but I will accept it. I believe in a short-term creation because it is the only thing, and I validated that right out of Genesis 2 and 3. That particular section leaves no possibility, zero possibility, unless there is a contradiction in the Word of God. Genesis 2 and 3, from a moral issue and from a creation issue, there is no other possibility than a literal six-day creation, okay? Anyway, either the Bible is true in its entirety, or it is a false book. 
And if we believe the testimony of the apostles' signs, then why would we need other signs today? That's my logical conclusion based on the Word of God. We have the signs, we believe in Jesus, therefore we have to believe the signs that were done by the apostles, and because of that, why do we need more signs today? We do not, okay? The Bible itself is to be our sign. You know that guy, what was it, they used to hold up the sign, here's your sign, and then he'd uh, say a joke about it. Was it Jeff Foxworthy? Anyway, one of these comedians did a great job of, here's your sign. Okay, the Bible is our sign. Read your Bible and have faith that it is God's word. Okay, I'm gonna stop before we go on to the next verse. Something just came to mind, it was brilliant. It was brilliant, and so I want to uh, give it out now, because I will forget this, and I don't want you to forget this, and you can write it down. He, uh, a friend, Trent, he sent me an email today, and it was had one sentence in it that was so wonderful. Okay, he's, how do I approach somebody about evangelizing? He gave his approach that he thinks is the right approach, and I agreed with much of it. It was just very well laid out, and he wants to take a different tact, but there's nothing unbiblical about it. One of the things that he said, this is just great, okay. Um, I, I'm gonna get this wrong because I don't have it written down in front of me, but try to remember the logic here. Okay, you believe in another God. You don't believe in the God of the Bible, okay? Now the God of the Bible says that he is perfect and we are imperfect. And so he took care of the problem to save us. Everybody got that? Okay. Would anybody here, anybody here admit that you are perfect? No, you are imperfect, and not only are you imperfect, but you are also limited, okay? You are limited in your, uh, you may be a perfect plumber, but you're not a perfect electrician. You are limited. You are not all-knowing in all everything, okay? So, your God that you are worshiping accepts you, okay? Got that? He accepts you and what you have done. He's going to allow you into his heaven. What does that tell you about your God? He's limited. He is limited. He is imperfect. If you can please your God, then you must be following an imperfect God. Everybody got that? Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Think it through, and then from there, I'm going to show you the God that is perfect, and he was willing to accept you despite your imperfection. Let me tell you about Jesus. Brilliant. Okay. Don't forget that because I will forget that and I'll go to bed and it'll be washed out of my head. But now I've said it twice, I may remember it and I'll be able to write something on it sometime. But thank you for that, Trent. Okay, wonderful stuff. Um, I'm gonna read the last sentence again. Either the Bible is true in its entirety or it is a false book. And if we believe the testimony of the apostle signs, then why would we need other signs today? The Bible itself is to be our sign. Read your Bible and have faith that it is 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 God's word okay 12 13 how are you inferior to the other churches except that I was never a burden to you forgive me for this wrong okay very well said by Paul okay I'm gonna read it again just so that you can think about it while I'm reading it for what is it in which you were inferior to the other churches except that I wasn't burdensome to you forgive me for this wrong Okay, he wasn't a burden on them, and so they're saying, well, he didn't burden us, and so he must not like us. Okay, and now he's saying, forgive me. All right, he's being sarcastic, obviously, about that. Paul asked the Corinthians a pointed question, for what is it in which you were inferior to the other churches? He had spent an immense amount of time with them. He had demonstrated the power of his apostolic ministry among them through demonstrations of the Spirit. He had treated them as his own 
children in every way imaginable. He had elevated the church and its congregants above himself as he ministered to them. All of this was certain, but with one difference. He says, except that I myself was not burdensome to you. They seem offended at the thing which was the most endearing from his standpoint. He had not been a burden at all to them in order that they would be able to grow spiritually without being weighed down in caring for him. Okay, I have made a point over the past, what has it been, five weeks, Hedico? Five weeks. I have made a point. I have my favorite Thai restaurant down the road. I've got my favorite Korean restaurant up by Fruitville, okay? And there's a 7-Eleven that I go to. I don't need to take care of them as much, but for a while I did because, you know, it was very slow for everybody. Now they're doing fine. But uh, we've got Anna's Deli, which is in the mall I take care of, okay? Uh, what's that? Yeah, Hobnob too, yeah. Anyway, so Anna's Deli, they're open. And I've made a point of at least once a week going to the Korean restaurant, and I made a point of going to the Thai restaurant, and I went today to Anna's Deli, and I got a sandwich there. And they all three of them do the same thing every time because I've known them. They were my business partners at the Thai restaurant for many years, okay? The Korean people I was in church with for many years and were very close as friends. And then Anna's Deli, I'm working there and I'm always helping them. People throw away their trays instead of taking them and putting in the tray thing. And I find them in the garbage because I sort through everything and I feed the animals with all of the food that gets thrown away, okay? And so I take them and I wash them off and I put them in the back door and then they put them through the uh, washing machine. And so I'm always trying to help them with stuff. All three of these places, every single time that we have gone there have done the same thing. What do you think it is? No, they want to give me free food. And I have made a point. Now, once in a while, I'll say, okay, you know, I'll let them buy me a sandwich at Anna's. I don't always do it, but once in a while, they'll say, oh, this is on us. Okay, I have no problem with that. I've helped them. They're giving me a free lunch, okay? And the same thing with the Thai restaurant. She's like, we're going to give you a discount. I said, until this is over, I do not want anything off. No discount. I don't want anything from you, okay? Is that, yes, and she promised, okay? So we, we do that. And the same thing with the Korean people. They're trying to sneak in appetizers and stuff for us. I don't want that because they are the ones that are hurting right now. And so I'm trying to just help them. And I post on Facebook, make sure you go there and buy from these people. Okay, this is what Paul was doing. I'm not trying to exalt myself by saying that. I'm, these are friends. It has nothing to do with the ministry. These are friends. Okay, but this is what Paul was doing. He was saying, I want to take care of you. There is a need that you are lacking, which you don't realize. And because of that, I am going to be no burden on you. They have a need, whether they realize it or not, and the bills are gonna come at the end of the month and they're gonna realize they have a bill. And so I'm trying to help them through that. Okay, same idea that Paul is saying here. Paul is the apostle. He is the one that understands that they have a lack, even if they don't think they have a lack. And so what did he do? He said, I was no burden on you at all. And they took offense at it. It's like my friend over at the Thai restaurant, especially. All of them are kind of this way, but she's the worst. She's like, I'm going to give you a discount today. And I'm like, you agreed. You know, it, it's so it, the same thing. She does not perceive her lack at this point, but she will. She's going to see maybe next month is going to be worse than this month. We don't know. We have no idea. And so I am trying to help her in the lack that she actually does not perceive. Okay. Paul was the apostle. He knows that there is a lack and he knows that he has to help them. That's the idea that's going on here. Okay. Go back and read this again. They seem offended at the thing which was the most endearing from his standpoint. He had not been any burden at all to them in order that they would be able to grow spiritually without being weighed down and caring for him. What was their lack? I just said it. They are spiritually lacking. 
and he didn't want to be a burden on them while they were growing spiritually. Remember 1 Corinthians? How bad it was? They're the dysfunctional church. If you were to give one title to every one of Paul's epistles, the best title I could think of is 1 Corinthians, the dysfunctional church. Okay? He didn't want to burden them because he perceived what they could not. They're dysfunctional. When you're dysfunctional, you think everything's okay. That's why you're dysfunctional. Okay? He perceived that. Here he uses the same word for burdensome that he used in verse 11, 9. It's a rare word that gives the idea of numbness or deadness. It is connected to the torpedo fish, which makes anything it touches numb. The intent is that even though he was present with the Corinthians, he asked for nothing which would numb them to his ministry. And so think of here when we swim out in the uh, the uh, Gulf. What is it? The um, uh, jellyfish. Yeah. The jellyfish. They hit you and they, they don't just hurt really badly, but eventually they numb you. That's how the Portuguese man of war kills you is it poisons you and you become numb and then you just can't feel anything and you sink and you're dead. Okay. So this torpedo fish had that numbing effect. Or what's the other one? The one that I grabbed when I was a kid. And, uh, the stingray. I've still got the mark in my hand here. One of these. It's right there. I grabbed a stingray not knowing what it would do and it, wow, do, never do that. Oh my good. You know, I saw the biggest stingray of my life about Tuesday of last week. I walked out on the dock to try to catch my wife a fish for dinner and I'm telling you, there was a stingray. It, a stingray, not a manta ray. It was a stingray with a head this big and the tail was probably as long as from Jim to me. It was I, I would have thrown my cast net just to catch the thing for fun, but that tail, if it got you, that would be the end of you. But, you know, I would have thrown him back, but man, that was the biggest thing I've ever seen was that it's like something you'd see in a picture in the Bahamas or something. Never in Sarasota have I seen one like that. Anyway, um, uh, and so in what is the highest of irony, Paul says, because they're numb, forgive me of this wrong. He had lavished upon them the greatness of honors, one of which was to not burden them, and yet they took this, this as an offense rather than as it should be received. Kind of like my little Laotian friend down there. She takes it as an offense when I'm trying to help her. But that's okay. We've been friends for so long that that's, we offend each other all day long. Who can out-offend the other? Uh, life application. Paul's intent for the church was certainly pure and without any strings attached, and yet the people there misread his actions. It is always good to take a moment to ponder the reasons behind the things before assuming ill intent. Let each of us be slow to anger or offense and quick to show gratitude towards others. And my mom is laughing because the person that gets the least slow to anger on the face of the planet is her son. So I, I, I'm, you know, I'm the type that I get very angry very quickly and then I'm over it 15 seconds later. That is it. I'm done. Whereas my wife will sit there and stew for three weeks and I'm just like, just get mad at me, please. And then let's get over this. So everybody's different, but I, I have just the, the big temper, the big one. Okay, uh, 12, 14, are we going to have time? Let's see. Yes, we have time for one more. Now I am ready to visit you for the third time. and I will not be, burden, uh, be a burden to you because what I want is not your possessions, but you. But you. Yes. After all, children should not have the same have to save up for their parents but parents for their children this is a verse you know i got my own children and i understand this okay i had to understand it a little personally today when my son came over to get something from me so i understand we save up for our children but i think this verse every time when i think of sergio and rhoda they're like my children okay they're like my adopted kids and they will want to do something for me and i refuse because they are my children 
they're my children in the faith, they're my children in my heart, and so I don't want them ever to do it, so I store up for them. And I, every time I read that verse, they come to mind. Uh, my son today needed, I need some nine millimeter ammunition, and so I had to give him 100 rounds to go down and play with his friends at the uh, shooting range. Anyway, um, I told him, these are not free, buddy. You're gonna be paying me back for these, so. Yeah, and it, it'll never happen. It, I, it'll never happen. <laughs> anyway, scholars generally agree that this isn't speaking of the third actual visit, but that he had intended to come a second time and was thwarted. This is now the third time he is ready to come to them. Or others disagree and feel that he simply had an unrecorded visit to Corinth. Either way, it is Paul's express intent to visit them when he arrives. And when he does, he plans to conduct himself in the same manner as he ha always has by stating that I will not be burdensome to you. Like me going down there until this coronavirus thing is over, I am not going to be a burden to my friend. And if she gives me a free meal without me knowing about it, I ain't going back there until this is over. Okay, I'm going to pay. This is one of the things that they had found fault in him for. But he has carefully and methodically explained to them why he has been no burden on them and why that would continue. It is because, as he says, I do not seek yours, but you. He cared nothing about their property or their wealth, but them. He wanted the people at Corinth to be saved and then to grow in proper doctrine, not to be led astray by false teachers. His justification for this is that the children ought not to lay up for the parents but the parents for the children. He treated his congregations as his own children. This is implied in his words to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.2 and to Titus in 1 Titus 1.4. I feel this way always about the people in the church, always. These are my children, and I, how can I not ruin them? You know, in their heart, say something demeaning or or you know, say something doctrinally wrong or whatever. I understand his feeling there because you are even if you're not smarter than them or more wealthy than them or more positioned in society, you are the one that is training them in the Word of God. And I feel that way. Okay, that's, I understand his feelings here. Those he had led to the Lord became his sons in the faith. When somebody starts getting into bad doctrine, somebody that I've been emailing with for three or four years, and they have always asked very intelligent questions, and all of a sudden they start getting into some funny thing, it's worrisome to me. I take it as personal because I want not what they have, I want them. I want them to have proper doctrine and I don't want them to get down this crazy track of hyper dispensationalism or, or you know, whatever. I, I don't want to give a bunch of doctrines out right now, but you know, they get up onto some funny thing that has nothing to do with sound theology and I don't want that for them. And it's hurting. It's hurtful. It can be inferred then that the congregations he had established also were his children in the faith. All of them. This verse confirms that. And because they were, he gives them words which are obvious to all people in all societies. The parents, if they are wise with their resources and labors, will store up their wealth in order to pass it on to their children. That's what Solomon said to do. Paul felt this was his spiritual obligation for them. He studied scripture, he pondered the mysteries of Christ, and he worked with his own hands to not burden the others in the congregation at Corinth. In all of this, he laid up for them so that they would be the benefactors of his resources and labors. Life application, we got just two more minutes. Paul has set a good example for pastors, preachers, priests, and ministers. 
it is right that the congregations remember those in such positions and take care of them. It's Galatians 6 verse 6. But it is also true that they should not be burdensome to their congregations. When the first thing happened, when the uh, uh, coronavirus thing came out and all of a sudden the nation was shut down, that week I went on the Prophecy Update and I said, I don't want anybody to send anything to this church if it is going to be harmful to you. If you have lost your job and you're counting on the government to send you money, why would you send that to us? Why would you do that? It doesn't make any sense. That was the very first week that came out because that's important. We will be fine here. We will make it through. My wife works. I work. I've got those four part-time jobs. We're going to be just fine. It's not necessary at this time. They should be willing to work to supplement their pay if necessary. Any good pastor should do that. Nowadays, you know, pastors get their paycheck. They get a pastorate, meaning a house that they live in. Usually the house is completely paid for, everything. They get food uh, allowances. I mean, it, some of these churches literally spend hundreds of thousands of dollars a year on their pastor. Maybe they should be out there working a little bit and learning to practice what they preach. They, all, they should also not burden those under them with the things they can do for themselves. There's a Lutheran church here, a person I know attends that Lutheran church in Sarasota, and not only do they take care of the pastor, give him a house, they take care of all of his needs, give him a car, give him this, give him that, give him all these things, but when his house needs to be painted, they come over and they paint it for him. And when the lawn needs to be mowed, they mow it for him. The guy doesn't do anything. He just sits there and he doesn't even have to have good doctrine. He just has to say, I've got a uh, DMV and uh, whatever at the seminary and I'm here to give you the word for 20 minutes a week and then the rest of the week you can take care of me. I, I can't believe it. Anyway, there you go. Above all, they should be a blessing, talking about the pastors, in all spiritual matters to those they minister to. That is what they're there for, okay? They're, people have to get their, their thoughts correct about these particular issues. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come into your presence and to share in your word and to hear these wonderful stories of people that have lived lives of faith in the past and read the words of Paul and the apostles and know that they are there and that they have been faithful in their lives. And Lord, comes to mind after that uh, pastor that took his own life, uh, he certainly had a congregation that is wondering what's going on right now and he probably had a family either around him or even a wife and children. I have no idea, but I would pray for everybody in that situation that they would not lose their direction in you over what happened, but they would find comfort in knowing that there was a purpose for this that will ultimately be seen and that they will stay strong in the faith in Christ. And we certainly pray for the other people that we mentioned at the beginning of this and anybody else that's having an affliction or something wrong in their life, that you would take care of them and help them through uh, until the end so that they will be comforted in it. And Lord, all these things we pray that you will be glorified and that you will be shown powerful in our own weaknesses. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.